There's actually a group of people who are paid to think about the future and tell us stories about it. They're science fiction writers. We may take it for granted that we have some idea of what the next 10 or 20 or even 100 years might bring, but really it's because a lot of smart people spend a lot of time thinking about the ins and outs of what human life will look like in the year 2200 or 3200. You read a novel in order to see what life was like in other times and places, the lived experience of it. So ancient Rome or moons of Jupiter, and you're there. Today I'm talking to Kim Stanley Robinson, one of the foremost science fiction writers of our age. Kim Stanley Robinson manages to write fiction that's incredibly complex on a scientific and political level, but also stays very human and tells us a lot about who we are now. He's been nominated and won just about every science fiction award you can imagine. Hugo Award, Nebula Award, Robert Heinlein Award. His series on Mars being terraformed, the Mars Trilogy, is a science fiction classic, and his most recent book imagines a New York City covered by 25 feet of water after global warming. I'm really excited to talk to Kim Stanley Robinson. Up next. Okay, Liam, on a scale of 1 to 10, how nerdy is our show? I'm hoping it rates pretty high, Grant. Give me a number. I think we we should always aim for 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. This week, we're going to take it to 11. Yes. (laughs) So I'm very fortunate to interview someone who a lot of people think is the greatest living science fiction writer. Uh, His name is Kim Stanley Robinson, and he writes and lives here in California, in Davis, actually. Um, Here's a question for you, Leah. How many California science fiction writers can you name? Go. Zero. <laughs> Zero. I have to admit. So here's the thing, Grant. I don't read a lot of science fiction. However, am I looking forward to hearing your interview with KSR? Absolutely. Because it sounds like he's very prolific and he's talking about science in a way that's really creative and probably puts it in a package that is just really exciting to read and to take in. All true, Leah, but you are living in the locus of American science fiction right here in the Bay Area. Philip Dick is from Berkeley. Jack Vance is from Oakland. Philip Dick from Berkeley went to high school with Ursula Le Guin, you know, two of the top science fiction writers ever. And it's just a very strange coincidence. California just has a very unique place in the world of literature and a super unique place in the world of science fiction. Um, And Kim Stanley is part of that tradition, although his stuff tends to be uh, a bit heavier and a bit more scientific than a lot of the science fiction from the 60s and 70s. And if you are new to science fiction and want to give him a try, I would recommend... The Years of Rice and Salt, which is sort of a crazy Buddhist guy keeps dying and being reborn. It's awesome. And if you feel like you want to take on something a little heavier, there's Aurora, which came out 2015 and is just a great novel about space flight. Very cool. So which one are you going to read, he- Leah? I mean, add it all to my Amazon shopping cart. (laughs) Um, 
I think it's just what I really appreciate in literature is when there's like very solid footing in reality. I think that takes even more creativity from an author sometimes. So it sounds like this guy's stuff would be right up my alley. Because yeah. you are such a huge, huge fan, Grant, can you say that this was an objective interview it was, <laughs> that we're about to air? It was probably not the world. So this is my interview with science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson. First of all, I'm going to start with a, a kind of big question for you. Uh, what do you think the responsibility is for an artist or specifically a novelist? There, I can answer it as a, in a couple of ways. And, but the first answer is kind of a science fiction metaphor. So I'll use that, that out of the novel that we want, um, time travel and we want telepathy. So you read a novel in order to see what life was like in other times and places, like an anthropologist or a sociologist, but the lived experience of it. So ancient Rome or moons of Jupiter, and you're there. And then the telepathy, we read novels in order to get inside other people's heads and, and um, imagine we're someone else and also to hear someone else thinking in like stream of consciousness. So... Um, with these the desires for the novel, what they can give us, and the telepathy in particular, you don't get out of movies or other art forms. You need that string of sentences and that um, kind of fictional in, interiority. That's what novels can do and give us. And then in another sense, you would say, novels talk about relationships between humans, one individual and another, this, this person that you're inside of telepathically, also, the individual and the society or uh, history, um, how the individual relates to their time. And then what science fiction can give also is the relationship of the individual and the society to the planet and to the cosmos. So it's a um, novels give us meaning in that sense. And uh, science isn't in, in the business of meaning. Science is uh, saying what's, what they think is going on, and then a question of meaning is for philosophy, but the novel is the sort of lived philosophies. So the question is, can you do all that in the, in the course of telling a story? And, and well, it's, <laughs> it's always a partial uh, accomplishment. You, you do parts of these things as best you can, and you have an experience. And I just finished reading a a couple of great novels, and I'm always reading a novel. And so as a reader, I, I, I love them for that. So this is, I think, what, and, and responsibility maybe is, is not, is only one way to put it. You could just say it's the desire of the writer and the desire of the reader. And I don't know, um, responsibility is maybe um, the novel as citizen or as political spokesperson. And it has that aspect to it. But um, first, there's the desire. Do you think you have a special responsibility because you are a writer who understands science? Maybe it's more of an opportunity because um, it's a little bit of an empty ecological niche in the world of literature to do novels that are um, really thinking about science rather than using um, 
I mean, science fiction is a really big field, and it includes story spaces that are basically versions of fantasy. So space opera, stories like Star Trek, these are, or time travel stories, these are physically impossible, but they're good story spaces for discussing certain human problems. So um, real science is hard to put into fiction. It wants to be collaborative, it wants to be slow, it wants to be definitive, it, it wants to have a passive uh, subject. It wants to be boring. Um, and that's part of the process of black boxing something. So um, when, when you try to write a novel that includes scientists doing their real work in this world, the committee meetings, the institutional gatherings, the fundraising, the kind of collective protagonist, um, these are all terrible problems of representation in novels and in stories in general. So, um, but again, a terrible problem is a kind of an opportunity for a new story that, that looks different from others. So I'd say I've had a particular a set of opportunities because I've paid attention and I've had certain life experiences working with the NSF, being married to a chemist, um, uh, socializing in, with groups of scientists m my whole adult life. I have the opportunity to write about these things and figure out what what stories might express their realities and, and tell the rest of the world uh, who are not as closely implicated with the sciences um, what they're really like and what they're teaching us and what they don't teach us. I have the opportunity to work with a lot of scientists and talk to them. It strikes me as a very insular community. Do you think scientists do enough to tell their stories? Maybe not. Uh, and I, I think that you could also reverse this and say most scientists know an awful lot about their culture and are interested in something else, you know, the arts, the communities they they have an interest beyond their science but also being a scientist is time intensive labor intensive and you tend to get be uh, deep but narrow uh, your field w could easily eat up all your time in keeping up in the latest in whatever tiny little subfield of the sciences where you're actually excavating new knowledge or creating new knowledge um and maybe even new applications either way it's so time intensive that you can end up being, like you said, a little insular or a little incomprehending of the wider world, the, the kind of naivete or the, the sort of Mr. Spock-like uh, literal understanding of things that are really quite metaphorical or, or quite vague. And, uh, I've seen that a lot, what you're talking about. But I've also seen since, since the turn of the millennium or maybe the late 90s, when the scientific community said, we've got a terrible problem with global warming, and then the world just kind of charged on disregarding that warning, the scientific community was taken aback. They thought that raising their hand at the back of the room and, and waving it and saying, look, destruction of civilization, mass extinction event, we got a problem, and then being ignored was a big shock because in their Mr. Spock mind, they were thinking, well, logically, you would never ignore something like this. But it did get ignored. And of course, most scientists are quite aware of money as power because of uh, grant proposals because of fundraising difficulties. Most scientific work is expensive and has to be funded. So when they began to think again, then the attack on the problem has, re has increased. And now, you know, 20 years later, let's call it, the, the world is way more uh, um, aware of climate change. And as the Paris Accord was done, the things have been accomplished by scientists rethinking how they're going to present themselves to the public. 
and how they're going to present important scientific information to the public because scientific information is by its very nature abstract and no single individual can um, figure it out on their own. It's a collective act. So I would say that it's a work in progress. And, and of course, it, it, you can only generalize to a certain extent. And then you have to say, well, some scientists are really good at this and other scientists are still hopelessly bad at it. How do you learn your science? I, um, I'm an English major. I read science news, the periodical. Uh, it comes every two weeks now, and I read it in paper because it's around. And it only takes a couple lunches to, uh, to read the whole thing. It's a slim pamphlet. So it's better than, say, nature or science, where you can never quite keep up. So science news, 35 years. I feel scientifically literate. And then when I get interested in a particular topic, I read more. And now, you know, Wikipedia, uh, very often the sciences are well described in Wikipedia articles. The Internet is, is irregular and uh, inconsistent, but it can be really good and it's getting better. And I read books by scientists at the cutting edge who have paused to write um, for the general audience. This is the significance of what's going on in my field. And someone like, say, Antonio Damasio writing about brain science, well, he's really good. And you can begin to understand things that you uh, don't quite get out of the scattered articles in science news, which are very much shorter in our journalism. So what used to be called the gray literature, popular literature, and scientists used to get no credit for this whatsoever. If they wrote for a general audience, they were even looked down upon. Carl Sagan was not uh, allowed into the National Academy of Sciences because of his popular work. Um, there was a prejudice against it. But when Stephen Hawking wrote A Brief History of Time, suddenly it began to look cool, and everybody began to do it. And so I read those books uh, on a targeted basis. They usually should be essays rather than books. Um, and I strip mine them for their information, but I read those. And then lastly, I talk to scientists. I've got now scientist friends in various fields, especially planetology down at NASA Ames in Mountain View. Um, super helpful, uh, willing to take on bizarre questions from me and answer them uh, in scientifically rigorous ways. And then lastly, watching my wife work. Oftentimes we're working, like I'm sitting at a computer here and she's not here today, but she'll be sitting at the computer next to me working uh, webinars and working through her computer with U.S. Geological Survey all around the United States. And I just, I'm in a bath of the way that scientists talk about things. And that's, for a novelist, that's just invaluable. When you started down the path of being a writer, did you always feel like this was going to be your niche? Almost always. Uh, I began as a poet um, when I was young, and I'm talking about high school and undergraduate years. Uh, I loved poetry, and the one good thing about starting as a poet is that you can write a poem, a lyric poem. It's a page long. You can revise it 50 times. You can consider it, and uh, you can focus on phrasing. It's something you can do as a young person. So, And Gary Snyder was a crucial figure for me, the Californian poet um, who had gone to Japan and been studied in a Zen monastery for 10 years and came back, and he's part of the kind of hippie, Buddhist, New Age, California, um, uh, spiritual slash ideological uh, culture that we're in. He's, he's crucial. And uh, he was my teacher in Davis, but this was afterwards. When I was young, reading his book, The Backcountry, it gave me a way to be. It was important to me to think of myself as a young mountaineer, wanderer, Buddhist, uh, Zen-type poet writing short poems that were basically like translated out of Chinese. 
so that it didn't matter that I couldn't rhyme and I had terrible meter. Um, and I was not a particularly good poet, I have to say. But then I discovered science fiction as an undergraduate, and it hit me like the light bulb going off over my head that my whole childhood in Orange County, California, had been a science fictional experience. When I read science fiction, it felt really familiar and really right. And that's, a, that's how lucky I was, was that all this came clear to me when I was about 20 years old. And after that, I was, I was uh, transfixed and fascinated. And science fiction became my project, even though I was an English major and a lover of literature and uh, never have been good or, or particularly educated in terms of any individual science. Science fiction has a special place in California, or maybe California has a special place in science fiction. Do you feel like an heir to that uh, tradition? Oh, yes, I definitely do. I think something's going on in that um, everybody, uh, uh, for a long time, especially European history, Anglo-American history, people kept moving west. Uh, and it was often the misfits or the people who were hungry for a better life one way or another, or they had blown it. Uh, and so you would head west and hope to start something new. And so it was very ramshackle and uh, um, a wild scene. And then you get to California, you can't go further west. And so everybody had to stop here and try to make something out of it. And it's a kind, been a kind of science fiction project. A, a utopian dreamer project since the gold rush. So this is kind of an American, uh, white American story. And uh, it was terrible for the, the Native Americans who had been living here for about 15,000 years. Um, but for the, for the Europeans that came here and settled and took over, kicked out the Spanish that had already been here also, um, and continued. California was a kind of a utopian project all along. So science fiction, then you've got the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society, which was uh, Robert Heinlein and also L. Ron Hubbard and also Ray Bradbury. And then you've got Philip K. Dick and Ursula K. Le Guin going to high school in the same years in Berkeley. At, uh, and um, Le Guin and Philip K. Dick have both been really important for me, more than the Southern California crowd, even though I came from Southern California. And amongst my own contemporaries, the UC San Diego, where I went, had um, Benford and Brin and Greg Bear and Werner Vinge, and um, that was coincidental, and we hardly even knew each other uh, whilst we were there. But there does seem to be something going on with California and science fiction, and I like that. I like being thought of as a Californian, and, and, um, and, I, and I like being thought of as a science fiction writer, and the fact that the two go together and that there's a... It's not a coherent literary movement. We're not a school. We, we don't write alike, and we don't hardly know each other, and many of us have moved elsewhere. But there's still something going on there that, for me, the touchstone is Le Guin and then, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, Philip K. Dick. I read the Mars trilogy last year after the presidential election, and it kind of shook me up because I felt like it was true on a lot of chords uh, in terms of problems that we weren't addressing on Earth. Do you think that's fair? Yes. Um, because last year's election is a sort of an exacerbated and ludicrous repeat of, of um, movement of things that have been happening since the Reagan-Thatcher counter-revolution, the 
the free market moment of capitalism where people believed Milton Friedman and uh, Alan Greenspan and the idea that the market could solve all problems, which was a kind of fundamentalist notion that had terrible repercussions for the environment and for people. Those are the two big losers in um, uh, free market capitalism. And those are pretty big categories, the planet and people. Uh, uh, it's a terrible economic system, but it was totally dominant. And, and the, the Clinton years and the Obama years were just kind of um, capitalism light or Republican light with um, uh, some hopeful signs. And I wouldn't want to disparage the good things that were done in those years. But by and large, it's been a bad story since 1980. And now we're uh, the moment of truth has come where the environmental damage and the damage to people has gotten obvious and is one of the things we're doing with this n new name the anthropocene is trying to name that that era so uh, when i wrote the mars books uh, another important part of my education was frederick jameson who was my teacher at ucsd and is one of the greatest uh, if not the greatest literary critic alive today. And um, by reading him, I had the kind of political and literary uh, theory to try to come to terms with what was going on and try to explain it at the level of the sort of Marxian base superstructure, which is an oversimplistic way to put it, as, as Jameson would point out. But um, nevertheless, it was important to write about the base, which is to say the plant and then the the mode of production or the the way in which the society is organized and see if I could write about that. And the Mars books were a great modeling exercise, a kind of miniaturization or an extension in the way that science fiction works as a metaphor for what we're doing now. The Mars trilogy gave me an enormous opportunity to try to model the whole thing. Do we need to start thinking beyond capitalism as a species? Well, yes. I would just say yes. It, what you want is not to have profit and uh, um, shareholder value be the only rubric of success or, and also the measurement of value. And, and also, you don't want to keep cheating the future by not paying the true costs. So these are um, – it would be possible to go on at much more length. And what I can say is that we haven't done a great job in trying to think about this, that – um, economists are always focused in on the current system. They do a semi-quantitative analysis of the current system. They don't speculate. They don't say the whole system should be different and should be like this. That would be called political economy. And a political economy was a kind of a 19th century thing that was replaced by economics. But economics is simply a description of capitalism. So when you think about post-capitalism, it's remarkably uh, impoverished discussion. And um, painfully so, because what you would want is some uh, people trained in economics to be proposing and thinking about this. I'm always suggesting to friends in academia that they gather a conference to discuss these very issues and see if we could come up with some new ideas. And as a science fiction writer trying to imagine various post-capitalisms, well, I feel devastated at the idea that it comes down to me because I'm more of a, uh, what you might call a reporter of a culture, and I don't have um, uh, original ideas at this level of thinking. It's, that should be something done by people who are more scientifically trained or philosophically trained or economically trained, all these things. It's a, a matter of political economy where I'm out of my uh, depth and, and would be better um, 
making a, a composite of what other people have done and tr- presenting that as a story. So my own stabs at post-capitalism and my various science fictions are, are pretty skeletal, easy to attack, and they do get attacked because the internet is filled with trolls who would like to think that they've thought about these things. But meanwhile, we've got a mass extinction event beginning, and um, everybody but the 1% is in the precariat and is scared for their kids and for their own social security, their own health, their own pensions. So um, it isn't as if there isn't a desperate need for this. There's kind of a recent right-wing strain running through science fiction. I wonder if you feel that when you publish or even criticism you get online. To a certain extent, but it's always been there. And one element of the strength of science fiction is that science fiction is about the future. So there will be a full political range of opinions and um, um, very um, intelligent um, right-wing reactionary opinions will be expressed as science fiction stories. Libertarian science fiction, um, uh, reactionary science fiction, Heinlein is a great example of this, and and it keeps coming back. It will always be there because people are free to think what they want, and and um, there's a strong strain of skepticism and contrarianism in uh, in humans in general and in the science fiction community in particular. And if everybody's coming to an agreement that we need to do something about a mass extinction event that we're causing ourselves, that that will be dangerous for humans and and morally disastrous, that the other big mammals are beautiful and important in and of themselves and also part of us, there will be instantly people saying, ah, oh, that's, that's nonsense. Um, and that's part of their pride, uh, part of their self images. I don't believe what everybody else believes. So you get climate skeptics, but then you get also uh, various kinds of um, uh, reactionary in that they're reacting against the common wisdom. And, you know, there's been moments in history where the reaction against the common wisdom has been absolutely appropriate. So the impulse is not a bad one. And I, what I tend to think is um, some of these people I like personally, and some of them I don't. But in any case, the ones I do like, they're entitled to their opinion, and they often are doing good works out in the world. Their, their personal lives are filled with charity, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm always trying to think... Uh, why do they think the way they do, and how can I translate that? And this is something Jameson teaches me that he's particularly good at. How can I translate this seemingly abhorrent and even uh, stupid political opinion into its hidden utopian content that is being expressed unbeknownst to the person expressing it? And you very often you can find it. And then we're out there in what some people call the marketplace of ideas, but of course I hate that metaphor. It's not a it is a marketplace to this extent. Everything's a commodity now, and you need an audience, and so people have to buy your book, and they have to spend their $10 and read your, you know, you work for a year, they spend $10, they, they read it over a two-week period. It's a great deal. It's a great art form, and it's a, it's a forum of ideas. It's a, it's a discussion space. People are arguing, and then the question is, can you make your argument the, the most plausible, which means the most fun? Um, on one level, it has to be entertaining, it has to be funny, and then it also maybe has to match with the planet's story. And here's where I feel like as an American leftist, uh, and in, you might say uh, um, these are older terms, but an environmentalist, um, a, a leftist, that um, my story is better because it matches better with the facts on the ground. It's more scientific. 
but that's a case that I have to make. And uh, you can't just assert it and assume that the other side is, is dim-witted because very often in science fiction, it's simply not true. The, there's there's um, widespread um, generous brilliance throughout the science fiction field. So you have to be, um, you have to fight. I mean, I'm not saying let's be tolerant of all cultural ideas because some of them are, are, are so bad that they could lead to um, mass death. Uh, for which the people promoting those ideas are partly culpable. So I'm not saying, oh, cultural tolerance, let's be relativist, everything is equally good, and if people you know, um, declare a fatwa on Salman Rushdie, well, that's the right because they have their culture. No, none of this is uh, true. You have to take a stand and have principles and fight for them. But you're fighting for other people who also are thinking that they're principled, and so it's an ideological battle, and ideology is interesting. It's an imaginary relationship to a real situation, and everybody has one, and everybody needs one. So then the question is, could you, how do you tweak other people's uh, ideologies in a persuasive way? You describe our current era in 2312 as the dithering. I was wondering if you wanted to expand on that. Yeah, I have um, a historian that kind of pops up in my novelist, uh, Charlotte Dorsabrevia. Um, or Charlotte Shortback, which is what that means. Um, and Charlotte is a periodizing historian. And this, again, is a very Jamesonian thing. How do we carve history up into different periods? And what do we mean when we do that? What are we trying for uh, when, we, when we say the feudal period turned into the capitalist period or when we say the Enlightenment turned into the Romantic period? And there are different categorizing and periodizing systems. So I thought for 2312, you're so far out there in the future that it, it would be, at that point, they'd be looking back at now and maybe two or three historical periods would have passed. And you don't want to just be saying the postmodern and then the post-postmodern and then the post-post-postmodern. You know, they're going to have new names, historians. So the dithering seemed right because, uh, especially when I wrote it, this was before the Paris Accord. It was, I wrote it probably in 2010 to 2011. And nothing in particular had been done about climate change and the, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere was still rising at a rapid rate. And so I thought the dithering is really what we're doing here. And people in the future will look back and say, how could they have been so uh, careless with us? How could they have wrecked our chances? Or, or said, ex how could they have um, made tigers extinct in the world and now we don't have them? Um, um, it's, it's, it, it will look remarkably foolish. And so I thought the dithering was the right name. But after that, I think the next period was something like the, the, the awakening or the, or the turn of the tide. And then the accelerando will be, if we start doing things right on this planet, if we get a grip with our problems and start to make a, a permaculture, um, things could accelerate for a while in, in terms of getting markedly better for people and, and, animals and plants, but then the retard, because nothing keeps going the same way forever. Uh, so this is my notion as uh, future periods. Climate change appears like it will be the biggest problem of the second half of the 21st century and probably the biggest problem of the 22nd century. Is there any hope? Well, yes, there's always hope. Uh, and what you would want to say is, um, it's important to keep attacking the problem as if it's completely solvable. And even if you acknowledge that there are going to be extinctions and we are way behind the 
the curve as to what we should be doing, the sooner we get on it and the more we do, um, the better off the situation will be. So in terms of hope, the technologies are already there for clean tech in a way that the, the life on this planet is so robust and the system is so big that if we were employing clean technologies for energy creation and for transport and for food creation, um, then uh, quickly enough, the planet would detoxify itself by natural processes and we could get back to the idea that permaculture is, is quite possible. Um, so there's not just carbon neutral, but there's all carbon negative in that one of the reasons I like this, uh, group that started by Bill McKibben called 350.org is that 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a science fictional goal. Uh, and we're at 400 now, and we're probably going to hit 450 before we begin to get back down again. And this is really dangerous, uh, close to the edge of a runaway event where, um, hope will be sharply reduced we'll be in disaster recovery mode if we if we uh, cause a, a rapid heating up of the planet it might be out of our powers to do much about that but then again if we apply all our powers to it if it becomes the project of in uh, human civilization to decarbonize and try to rescue what we can then it probably can be done technically so it's not technology that's the problem we've got and we're getting better all the time at clean tech uh, then population, that is a problem, how many humans there are. That stabilizes as soon as women have their full rights as human beings. Uh, even the UN Declaration of Human Rights would be enough it if it was applied across the board. And if, if people weren't in extreme poverty and if women weren't uh, oppressed as kind of domestic animals for men in various cultures of the world, then as soon as you get to equality, you get popula population stabilization. And it, it might be true that the Earth can support 8 to 10 billion humans in a sustainable way that doesn't damage the other animals if we got our clean tech together. So in other words, it's not technology, it's not population, but in the IPAT formula, which is what I'm rehearsing here, Paul Ehrlich's um, impact equals population times appetite times technology, appetite is Ehrlich's way of trying to say economics. He's trying to say there not some basic human desire for more or, or a human nature that is intrinsic. He's talking about the appetite created by the economic system that you're in. So I told him this at a talk I gave, that it should be the IPET formula, population times economics times technology. And what you see in this, in the way I'm describing it, is that the hope lies in us making a post-capitalist system where survival and dodging the mass extinction event is the main goal, and you pay, we pay ourselves on that basis. Um, it is post-capitalist, but it also gives us enormous hope of a eventual prosperous age. One of the criticisms of your book, uh, New York 2140, was that the sea level was higher than what people think, even the worst cases at this point. Yes, but the people's thinking of the worst cases are, are um, behind the curve of the latest science in glaciology. So the IPCC, they, the, the scientific community wants to be conservative. They don't want to be alarmist and they don't want to say things they can't back up with, with uh, data and with modeling that makes sense of the data. So, uh, so far, people have been saying by the end of this century, sea level might rise by a meter. But, um, I mean, James Hansen is important here. He published a, a paper with uh, 18 co-authors saying that 
the last time um, global temperatures rose as much as they have in the last century and a half, sea level rose like 15 meters in 100 years. And now this is a controversial case. It takes a lot of different sciences to kind of make this case of what happened in the Eemian, you know, 120,000 years ago or whatever. But uh, his point is, their point is valid. There's a lot of ice perched uh, um, unstably on Antarctica and also to a certain extent on Greenland. And if that ice slides in faster than we expect it to slide in now, then you have got really rapid sea level rise. And if all the ice on this planet were to melt, sea level goes 220 feet higher. So when I postulated that in the year 2140, it was 50 feet higher, this was pushing it to the uttermost uh, height that I thought would be plausible once I explained it. In other words, if on the ice front everything goes wrong, we could see that kind of sea level rise. It's not physically impossible. It is uh, at the far end of, of what's likely um, but I tell you what, even even one meter and especially three meters of sea level rise uh, and and all the coastlines, all the human infrastructure on the coastlines of the world are are in terrible trouble. So I just did this in New York because I wanted lower Manhattan to be a Venice and I needed 50 feet of sea level rise. So you have to understand my novel as a kind of an entertainment that is there to serve as a thought experiment and to and to be a work of art and and not it's not me um, saying to the world this is what's going to happen i'm saying this could happen it would be devastating and the people surviving in that era will be having to cope with this as their main project and we should attend to it now so this is the kind of mental operation that a science fiction novel like that has to put you through you uh, it seemed to be a believer in terraforming places like Mars and Venus, and I'm wondering if we can do the same on planet Earth. Well, it's a great uh, way to think about it. Um, and the idea that we have to terraform Earth is, of course, a kind of a bad joke, and that's why they call it geoengineering. But certainly we are going to be thinking about geoengineering because we are being slow to uh, uh, reduce our carbon burn. And if we get close to one of these disaster tipping points, we may decide that geoengineering is the least bad of several bad options. So the two that I'm hearing of that I think are, or no, there's more than two, and, and let's talk about them all. The first is um, to imitate a volcanic explosion and put a lot of um, sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere. It deflects a certain amount of sunlight, and then temperatures cool down, and they'll cool down for five years, and then you would have to do it again relatively inexpensive and technologically achievable. So it's being discussed. And the secondary effects of that could be bad, like it could stop the monsoons, in which case um, uh, a couple billion people are in terrible trouble. So uh, if we do it, it's going to take those couple billion people agreeing that it's better than the alternatives. And it's going to be also, however, a controlled experiment in that five years later, things will be that that sulfur dioxide will be on the ground and things can get back to normal. So people are talking about that. Then another thing that the Potsdam Institute has looked into, which I find quite amazing because I thought it was my silly idea in a science fiction story that is now called Green Earth, is pumping water back up onto the Antarctic, or an Antarctic ice cap and letting it freeze up there and therefore keeping sea level rise from going 
uh, from flooding all the coastlines of the world where it's so crucial for humanity. And they calculated that it would take about 20% of the energy generation of the entire human civilization to power the pumps to get that water back onto the Antarctic ice cap. I was stunned when I read that. If you had asked me, I would have guessed that it would have been 1% or less. But I didn't think about how heavy water is. I didn't think about gravity. I didn't think about how much water is involved here. And uh, we do have oil piping. We do have the pumps. Um, and during sunlight, we could use solar power. Because, of course, you don't want to be burning carbon to do this. Uh, and I'm thinking that even at that stupendous energy cost, if you had giant floating rafts of solar uh, panels powering a bunch of oil pipe like pumps that are pumping water back up on top to the Antarctic ice cap. Uh, and in my novel, I also postulated that the dry basins of Central Asia and North Africa that used to be lakes and no longer are, if you wanted to get into that level of gardening the earth, uh, terraforming, as you said, you could even try pouring water in there and you would create clouds, you would create uh, landscapes. It would be like the Salton Sea in California, but way, way bigger. It would be salt lakes. Um, that's radical, but each nation state might make decisions on that level and maybe get paid by the rest of humanity to take up some water. It's not impossible this might happen. Then the third and best of all is simply that you grow forests and that you create peat bogs. So you do carbon capture by natural processes, by using biology, by uh, saving the forests we haven't cut down, and also growing more forests and, and capturing carbon that way. And of course, every time a tree dies, it releases its carbon back to the atmosphere. But um, on the other hand, if you, if you grow more than, than dies and releases, then you get um, carbon negative activities. And... And lastly, vacuum cleaners that vacuum carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turn it into graphite and use graphite and concrete to build our stuff. This is a sort of science fictional techno terraforming activity that if scaled up might be a small part of the solution. I think all of these will get discussed and maybe some of them will get enacted if we, if we, if we get desperate enough. You're a backpacker in your spare time. I'm wondering how that influences your work. Well, it's huge. Um, I would suppose over the last, uh, over my adult life, I'd probably spend about a month a year backpacking in the, mostly in the Sierra Nevada of California, then mostly the Southern Sierras. So it's a very particular space with its own characteristics. And I'm deeply in love with for reasons that are hard to explain, but, um, uh, easy to feel. And so when I'm up there, I'm thinking about how humans evolved, what we really need, um, I'm thinking about how important it is to be outdoors because of my backpacking. When I came home, I finally decided I had to write my novels outdoors and I set up a tarp in my front yard. I'm in, you know, Davis, California. I'm at the butt end of a Mediterranean climate and almost every day of the year I can be out there either with a fan or down jacket on, depending on if it's too hot or too cold and a tarp keeps the rain off me. And I spend every working hour of my life outdoors and the backpacking is what convinced me that was important. Um, we are still the same primates that came out of Africa 100,000 years ago. Genetically, nothing has changed except for a certain spread of lactose tolerance. Other than that, we are those same creatures. And we evolved to spend a lot of time walking around outdoors, looking at things, throwing rocks at things, um, making fires, which, of course, is quite difficult now. Um, that's one aspect of there being too many of us. Um, you really ought not to make too many wood fires. But... Um, in any case, the things we evolved to do 
that got us uh, to where we are in this particular genome that we've got, when we do those, we are happier. And that is just a straightforward relationship that I'm trying out in my own life as an experiment on myself. It's working as, as well as I think it can. I, I certainly like trying it. And of course, there's never a control, so who knows, but I'm enjoying the attempt. And then, then I write about that. I write about all these thoughts as science fictional thoughts, um, a sort of future primitive. What if we decided the smartest thing to do would be to de-urbanize? Well, I like actually urbanization. That's very ecologically smart. But what if we just decided to uh, pay more attention to what we are genetically and try to make ourselves happy by doing what we evolved to do? Well, I appreciate you coming indoors for this interview. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's okay. I'll, I'll be back out there. My my white crowned sparrows are missing me. I I live with birds and I feed them, so they come on in and uh, they are my office mates. And uh, it, they don't. Nice. Yeah, they think I'm just part of the furniture. They they sometimes will land on my knee. Even they are so wow. uh, used to me being there. You've written a little bit about emergent AI. Do you think there is the possibility for a fo- post-human civilization? No, I don't. Um, I think that's one of those wrong science fiction ideas that can take hold and uh, spread for a while and then it goes away. Um, and, and it's harmless if it's harmless, but it can become harmful. I'm thinking in the science fiction history, how Scientology began as a science fiction idea and many people's lives have been ruined by it. Uh, that was a sort of deliberate scam. Um, frozen heads, the idea that you should freeze your heads and later on they'll save you and stick you on another body, that's another bad science fiction idea that's kind of a scam, less ruinous to lives, but also a false idea. And then downloading ourselves, uploading ourselves, or machines just taking over for us, these are kind of fearful fantasies that don't, they're not listening to what the AI researchers are telling us. And the AI researchers are telling us Consciousness is hard. The brain as an active working brain is very hard to study at the level of detail at which it's really happening. In fact, it probably is happening at levels three or four or five magnitudes smaller than we can look at in a living brain. Dead brains we can look at, but they're dead. So the, we are not going to be able to recreate re, uh, human consciousness in a machine. And so what we're going to get is various kinds of AI, but those names are, I mean, they are going to be artificial and they are going to be intelligence, but they aren't going to add up to anything like consciousness. So people often quote the Turing test. Can, can a machine pass the Turing test? I'm saying the Turing test is a really low bar that we are fooled all the time about things that we think are conscious that aren't. Even our, our car voices, the GPS voices, the Siri, the Amazon and, and Google voices can begin to sound like um, sentient and thinking creatures. And, and if computers get a lot better, which they are going to, then we might get some really plausible conversational partners. But they still won't be thinking uh, in the sense that we are. They won't be conscious and they won't have will. And so... There were various ways in which I'm fascinated by AI, and I'm and actually in my stories I'm trying to sort out what can they really do, how can they help us, how can they scare us, what's the story there, and thinking about quantum computers and trying to think <laughs> in the way that uh, limited way that I can about what quantum computers might mean. It's 
as long as you don't just fall into the trap of, oh my God, there's going to be a singularity in the next 30 years and then machines are going to take off into the cosmos and we're going to be the, the kind of meat precursors that um, created them and are now left behind, which is just, I think, a completely wrong science fiction story, then I think it's worth thinking about AI critically and, and, uh, see, and trying to figure out how can it help us? Could we have new forms of money? Could we have new forms of government? Um, algorithms are everywhere now. What's good about algorithmic thinking? How can we put it to use? So that's what I think is the interesting part of that. It's interesting you mentioned bad science fiction ideas. Uh, I also read Aurora in the this previous year, and one of the things that struck me is it seemed almost like a corrective on this idea that we could escape into space and that there was some utopia out there outside of our solar system. Yes, yes. Um, that that novel Aurora is making that case and I think it's an easy case to make. I think we actually were entertaining a fantasy that we didn't know was a fantasy. The idea of going to the stars was a 19th century idea when we didn't know how big the universe was and we didn't know how uh, much we ourselves as in individual creatures are biomes that depend on many other species living inside us. So now that we know that 50% of the DNA in our bodies is not human DNA, um, the idea of putting yourself in a, in a tiny enclosed uh, tin can that has a biological life support system going and that you're going to spend two or 300 years, and this is only to get to the very nearest stars, uh, to get to a, a not Earth that won't be compatible to our biology and then settle there, it turns out that that's all a fantasy. And so that needed to be said to, in, to um, make sure that the conversation about Earth it doesn't have this moral hazard of thinking, well, if we accidentally destroy Earth, then we can just live on Mars, or we can go off to other planets somewhere else and humans will survive there. That if, if you suddenly think to yourself, but wait, that's not true. Or if it becomes true, it becomes true about 10,000 years from now when humans get inside gigantic asteroids and basically seed the galaxy uh, by going everywhere and hopefully staying alive or evolving into something quite other. I mean, that's a story that maybe still can be told. But the old starship story, the old idea that humanity, as we recognize it, is going to be everywhere in the galaxy zipping about, as in Star Trek or Star Wars, it's a fantasy. And like Lord of the Rings, fantasy can be fun story. It can even be useful in teaching us things about ourselves. It can be a good story space, but it's not a real plan. One of your characters at the end of Aurora comes back to Earth and has a case of uh, agoraphobia. A friend of mine who's actually suffered from agoraphobia said that it was one of the best descriptions he's read of that problem. I'm wondering if you have any personal experience with that. Uh, no, that was a case of trying to imagine the other. Um, I'm, if anything, I'm more claustrophobic. But um, Asimov, one of the greatest of the science fiction writers, was an agoraphobic. And that's why his books, The Caves of Steel, where he's really happy, and The Naked Sun, where he's really unhappy, which is to say his characters, his expressions, those are his two best novels because they're more emotional than the rest of his novels. And as for agoraphobia, what I think in that is interesting to think about is not the, I mean, the personal psychological experience of it must be uh, frightening and even terrifying and disabling, and I would hate to have it. And everybody is subject to um, various kinds of falling off the rails of, of um, ordinary consciousness. And, and, and you know, I, I can fully uh, um, imagine 
various kinds of obsessive compulsive disorders because that's what a novel writing experience is kind of like is a controlled obsessive compulsive fit. Um, so, but the culture, the culture is indoors and is a little fearful of being outdoors. Uh, we are conditioned ourselves. We essentially our rooms, be, have, we've made our, our clothing into the shape of a room so that, um, you can, I've found this myself in, in down to about 40 degrees. If you clothe yourself right, uh, you will end up being comfortable and in, actually, in Antarctica, for short periods of time, like out for a day, you can be in uh, 25 degrees below zero and clothed right, you can be comfortable. But when you insist that your rooms are your clothing, that you can that always be in shorts and a t-shirt inside a room and it's 20 degrees outside but it's 70 degrees inside, then you're cocooned in crap, this is what I say. And so agoraphobia is just part of that, a fear of the outdoors, when actually we evolved to be outdoors, it's a, it would be a sad fate. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for talking to me, to, me today, and uh, I just want to say your book, New York 2140, comes out in paperback this month? Oh, I don't think so. I think uh, my news is that, I mean, m maybe that's true, but I thought it was next March. Well, you but would it, know better than I did. So. I know. I, <laughs> I can say that. I'm, I'm uh, on to the next novel beyond that one, and I'm not thinking about that. But in any case, it's out there, and um, I had a lot of fun with New York 2140. I think it's one of my more successful entertainments. And, um, well, and it, was, it was a great read. And if, if I could just make a personal recommendation for anyone who's going to get into Kim Stanley Robinson after listening to this, Aurora is just a fantastic novel start to finish, and it changed how much I enjoyed the beach. So thank you very much for that. Ah, well, thank you, Grant. I, uh, I miss the beach intensely. Um, it's where I grew up, and now I'm in inland, and, and I don't know how it happened, but it did. So um, yeah, let's go to the beach. Um, that's a Frank Zappa song. Or Let Me Take You to the Beach by Frank Zappa. We can end on that, and maybe <laughs> you can good. find that song. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. You betcha. Bye. Well, you heard the man. We are going to exit this week listening to the sounds of Frank Zappa's Let Me Take You to the Beach. Thanks so much for listening to Science Island on KACR 96.1 in Alameda. Thank you to Kim Stanley Robinson for coming on and to Leah Hitchens, my co-host. Thank you as always. We'll see you next week on Science Island. Find us online on Twitter or on our SoundCloud page. 